This episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is brought to you by Maestro Classics, the creators of Stories in Music, a fun recorded series made for children and families to discover the thrill of classical music together. Featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra, Stories in Music brings over a dozen exciting stories to life with the help of a narrator and colorfully illustrated booklets. From Peter and the Wolf and the Story of Swan Lake to a hilarious bel canto opera called Juanita the Spanish Lobster, these recordings are designed to introduce classic tales, history, and exciting musical performances to children. The Maestro Classic Stories in Music series has won over 50 national awards and garnered praise from parents, grandparents, teachers, and children alike. All Maestro Classic CDs are available at the Met Opera Shop at Lincoln Center and online at metoperashop.org. To learn more, visit maestroclassics.com. Here's a bit of opera trivia. Which Wagner opera remained unfinished for 25 years? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Richard Wagner's last completed opera, Parsifal, was conceived in 1857 but would not debut until 1882 and did not appear at the Met until 1903. I'm Naomi Baratera, and today we feature Guild lecturer John Muller and a talk that explores the musical language and history of this monumental work. Good evening. Thank you for coming this evening. Uh, tonight marks the uh, re um, first uh, performance of a production that dates back to 2013, and uh, when it was new in that year. And um, I hate to disappoint you, but I don't plan to talk about a thousand gallons of blood or fake blood. Um, you can read all about that in the Times, a big article on that. Um, I did wear this red tie, though, in honor of, the, uh, of that production. I've had a fascination with this work going back to high school, and I think I've seen it more than any other opera. So the question is, how oh, far more times than Bohème or Traviata or Carmen? Uh, far more. Um, and so the question is, how best to use this hour? because there's so many issues in Parsifal, there's so many things to discuss. It is such a multi-layered work. Um, so I thought I would focus first of all on the genesis and chronology of the work, because knowing something about that explains how Parsifal got to be the opera that it is. And I want to talk about some of the interpretations of the story, production history of the work, and of course, some musical issues. So you all should have gotten a handout that actually does begin with the chronology, and that's what I'd like to start uh, going over. Uh, you can read the specifics on your own. I just want to hit some high points here. It was in the summer of 1845 when Wagner read his source material for this opera, Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parsifal and the Unfinished Titorel. Uh, and he already then, in 1845, had the idea 
of using this as a possible subject matter. Uh, but obviously, it wasn't for another 37 years that he brought it to the stage. It wasn't that unusual for Wagner to get an idea for something and then spend decades before it got done. The Ring is a famous example, but also Meistersinger. Uh, but Parsifal is the longest period between first uh, encountering his material and then bringing it to the stage. In the 1850s, Wagner was working on The Ring. He was working on Tristan. But notice the unfinished projects he worked on, a uh, opera based on Jesus of Nazareth, one based on uh, a Buddhist theme, The Victors, and obviously he never completed his operas, but they worked their way into Oreo Parsifal. Very important were his uh, studies of Schopenhauer and Buddhism, uh, the themes of compassion, pity, denial, chastity, are very important ones in Parsifal, and this is something he was getting out of his study of Buddhism and Schopenhauer. By the way, I wouldn't so much say that Schopenhauer influenced Wagner as Schopenhauer crystallized ideas that were already there in Wagner's mind. Uh, reading Schopenhauer helped Wagner to realize what a Schopenhauerian he had always been. And then letters show how his thoughts on this are evolving. Uh, then you get the prose uh, scenarios, the first libretto. But finally, 1877, starting work on the music. Now you might wonder, well, why didn't he sit down and get right to work on Parsifal? I think there are a number of reasons. One being that perhaps Wagner recognized this, is a, this has to be a last work. The subject matter of this piece has to be a final project. Um, it's an opera about a journey, a number of different journeys going on in the exterior, the interior, in the opera. Maybe Wagner realized in the 1840s he simply wasn't ready to do this. A Parsifal of the 1840s would have sounded like Tannhäuser, um, and we don't want that. And maybe Wagner realized on some level that he had to go through his own personal journey, his own psychic journey, so to speak, before he was ready to tackle this particular subject. I think it's always important to consider why Wagner came to a particular topic when he did. Why did he finally decide to write Meistersinger? Why did he finally decide to write Parsifal? What were the precipitating factors? Um, in the case of Parsifal, uh, the Bayreuth Festival of 1876 had been an uh, artistic success, but a financial disaster. Wagner took a bath in that uh, 1876 ring cycle, and one of his reasons for sitting down to write Parsifal was to make some money. He hoped this would bring in some money to pay off the debts from the first ring cycle. And again, as I was suggesting earlier, themes in this work I think are appropriate to a composer at the end of his life as Wagner is approaching the end of his journey. On the subject of interpretations, Wagner's genre title uh, is suggestive of a variety. He called it Ein Bühnenweihfestspiel, a stage consecrating festival play, uh, which is a mouthful in either language. Obviously, the stage which is being consecrated is the Bayreuth stage. Uh, it was the only opera Wagner wrote having heard the acoustic. And that's something to consider when you listen to Parsifal. So Parsifal is a stage consecrating festival play. And again, that in itself, I think, opens up questions about what is the opera really about? Um, how do we explain that piece? Is it a religious work? 
If so, is it a Christian work? Is it a Buddhist work? The slow ritualistic pace of the piece suggests something beyond an everyday opera, I think. And a key to understanding this is partly in the gestation that I just went over with, uh, with you. Certainly in terms of it relating to religion, uh, there's a miracle that's described in Act One. There is, of course, the prophecy of the guileless fool. So those could be seen as some religious elements. It has sacred relics, the grail, uh, the cup that uh, caught Christ's blood on the cross and was also used at the Last Supper. By the way, in Wolfram, they are not sacred relics. Okay, This is something that uh, Wagner decided on later. The spear, of course, the spear that pierced Christ's side. So sacred relics are a part of this piece. There are a variety of references to Christianity. I sometimes speak of the external trappings of Christianity in the piece. But whether it's truly a Christian work or not, I have some doubts about that. As far as the Buddhist element is, there's been a book written about Parsifal suggesting that the work is the fifth opera of the ring cycle and um, dealing with the idea of karma and reincarnation and rebirth and characters of the ring are reborn in Parsifal. Very interestingly, he suggests that Siegfried is reborn as Parsifal. Uh, Siegfried is an active hero. Parsifal is a passive hero. Uh, Parsifal develops compassion. He renounces violence. Uh, he evolves far beyond the character of Siegfried. It's an interesting concept. Um, I would prefer in this opera to take a more global view and see Wagner working with themes and characters that go back at least to the Flying Dutchman. We could see a connection between the Dutchman's wanderings and that of Kundry. So there certainly are, is a strong Buddhist element in this piece. It's also a work in which Wagner is expressing his final thoughts on anti-Semitism. And so to some people, this is far from a Christian piece. It's really a very disturbing, ugly piece, at least when you're dealing with just the text. The thing is, the music doesn't sound that way to me at all. It's an opera about a journey. And there's an outer story, the regaining of the spear, the restoration of the knighthood, uh, but this is also reflecting an inner psychic journey on the part of Parsifal, uh, Parsifal's growing understanding of himself. This comes about very importantly in the second act, moving towards a harmonious integration of different realms of the psyche. In other words, you can take a Jungian interpretation of this piece, and ultimately, I think that's what the work is about. Uh, this, I'll say that again, uh, that Parsifal is moving towards a harmonious integration of the different realms of his psyche. Uh, you know, the knighthood has been in disharmony, and it takes Parsifal to bring things back together. Again, uh, the uniting of the spear and the, and the grail clearly are male and female elements that need to be in balance. And once the spear was lost, that balance was upset. And so Parsifal is able to bring them back into balance so the knighthood once again can flourish. I feel that uh, an ex the Parsifal is, is an experience beyond opera. I find it a deeply moving piece. I certainly think there are spiritual qualities to it, but I would not try to restrict it to any particular uh, denomination. As far as history of productions, I want to read you something here. Uh, the Met was the first opera house to perform Parsifal outside of Bayreuth. That was in 1903. That was considered a desecration of the work. 
Uh, when they got their second production in 1920, a uh, reviewer was concerned that it didn't really follow Wagner's stage directions. And he talked about some disappointment in the opening scene, and quoting Wagner, he says, this should be a forest glade over which the surrounding trees cast a shade which lend its solemnity without gloom. From the middle foreground, there is a gradual slope downward to a deep-lying forest lake. The reviewer goes on to say, there is no forest glade. There is a single line of tall trees whose lowest branches interlace so as to form symmetrical Gothic arches. The effect is less of a forest glade than of a rustic arbor in natural wood. Okay. He then goes on to complain, there's a lake, but it's not a forest lake. And um, I thought to myself, boy, oh for the days of forest glades, when that was your biggest concern in an opera production. Okay. But uh, there in 1920, this reviewer did not approve of the new production of that time. Well, let's go back to the first Parsifal in Bayreuth in 1882. Uh, Wagner was receptive to many, many different influences, be they philosophical on the part of Schopenhauer, be they musical on the part of Beethoven or Weber, uh, be they literary, or be they something he was actually seeing in the world. Wagner made a trip to Italy uh, in the 1880s and was knocked out by Siena Cathedral when he visited the cathedral. And it gave him his idea for the Grail Temple in Act One. Um, and as a matter of fact, before World War II, Bayreuth was known for very traditional, very old-fashioned productions. After the war, when Bayreuth reopened in 1951, all of that changed um, under Wagner's grandson, Wieland Wagner. And he directed and designed a Parsifal in 1851 in what came to be known as the Neo-Bayreuth style, to clean out the attic both um, stylistically and artistically, but also culturally. Bayreuth was strongly connected to Hitler. They had welcomed him there. And for a new uh, start, maybe it was necessary to have a very different style of production to erase any connection with Hitler and the Nazis. Uh, the Neo-Bayreuth style stressed simplicity, uh, timeless settings, allowing the mythic element to emerge. This idea of some sort of psychic journey can really emerge in a uh, neo in at least Wieland's production, because nothing's being imposed upon it. It's not really realistic, uh, but as I said, he's not imposing anything on it. Uh, the use of light is very important. Uh, so here is the uh, 18, sorry, the 1951 uh, Parsifal for Act One in the Wieland Wagner production. You can see the suggestion of trees and the knights, Parsifal and Gournemont's in the middle. And Villon did a lot with discs, especially in the ring, of course. But there you see the disc, which is so much that they're all standing on, which is so much a part of the neo-Bayreuth uh, neo style. Now, more recent Bayreuth productions have been very different. Uh, they fall under the heading of the Regie the Theater the director's theater, where the director will impose his concept on a work and not be too concerned with a forest glade or in natural wood or unnatural wood. Uh, there was a production I didn't see in 2004, the famous chicken sleeve production, in which there were rotting rabbit corpses on the stage. Um, but one from 2008, last heard in 2012, I saw it three times, is a different story. Uh, it was done by Stefan Herheim. 
He was the director. It was very provoking, um, at times very beautifully, beautiful, but ultimately distracting. Uh, there were many layers in the production. Um, and it was basically recapitulating the history of Germany since Wagner's death and the formation of the German Empire in the 1870s. Wagner died 1883. And, uh, and taking it up to uh, the, the uh, reunification. And this was conveyed partly by having a swan medallion at the top of the proscenium at the start of the opera, which turns into a double-headed eagle, which was the symbol of the German Empire, which then turned into a swastika, uh, which came crashing down at the end of Act Two. And you'll see that a little bit later in a video. In this production, Amfortas dies. Uh, he represented the old Germany. He had to die for it to move on. And Kundry lived. And um, I met the Kundry at a performance. She's an American woman. And I asked her about, you know, living at the end of Parsifal, you're supposed to be redeemed and die. And she didn't think much of it. She said, half the productions I sing in in Europe, I live. Um, so that's simply the way things are done over there. Um, so my next example, uh, one of the most beautiful sets I have ever seen. This is Act One uh, in the Herheim production. This is the back of Villa von Fried, Wagner's home. That's the music room. And his grave is out here. And that was the setting for the first scene in Act One. And you can't see it here, but the detail was just extraordinary and uh, very, very beautiful. And you can see the swan medallion above the set. Now, uh, more, more recently, in 2016, uh, Uwe Laufenberg had a new production, uh, not as extreme as some Regie Theater productions. Uh, it was set in a, uh, given a, an apparently contemporary setting in a bombed out church in the Mideast. So it was showing a, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Besieged Christian community in the modern Mideast. I felt there was an emphasis on the superficial aspects of religion, which robbed the piece of its deeper message. On the other hand, I didn't think the production got in the way of the work either. So I was able to enjoy it and enjoy the music. At the end of this production, they have an ecumenical moment when Christians, Muslims, and Jews uh, put their, the symbols of their religion in a Titerel's coffin as if to uh, end all of that conflict. And so I'm going to show you some images from this more recent Bayreuth production. First of all, Act One. And they don't distinguish between the scene one and scene two. That's the bombed out church. And it's filled with refugees from the warfare. Now, the flower maidens initially were robed like that. And that's Klaus Florian Vogt, looking kind of confused in the middle there. And then later, they're transformed into belly dancers. And they're entertaining him in a bath. Okay. Uh, the fact is, there are quite a few references to Moorish Spain and Arabia in the opera. And uh, the mentioning of the balsam from Arabia, the exotic nature of the flower maidens and their music, the lightly ornamented arabesque-like figures. Actually, if you go through the score, in particular, Wagner's stage directions do indeed suggest um, that is a background, okay? The period in Spain when the Christians 
had partly retaken Spain, but there was still a Muslim element. However, I don't think Wagner's main concern was Christian-Muslim conflict. Um, uh, and that in this particular production, that's what is forefront. Now, the uh, Met production, for, as I said, from 2013, uh, directed by Francois Girard, is always referred to as the post-apocalyptic Parsifal, and where there are many references to nature in Act One and Three and Wagner's score, here you have a far more barren-looking set, um, hence the term post-apocalyptic. Uh, I should tell you the prelude has something going on on the stage. It is staged. Uh, this is very common in modern-day productions of any opera to have some kind of staging going on during the prelude, um, and you see some men and women um, gathering. At the end of the opera, women actually gather with the knights. And that's not uh, the way it is in Wagner's stage directions, but uh, that kind of begins and ends the work in, in that way. Now, getting to some general musical issues, uh, Parsifal, as Wagner's last work, is a summary and synthesis, both musical and extra-musical, of Wagner's style. Uh, you have the refinement of his harmonic language, which is very much uh, part of this work. Uh, Wagner's leitmotif technique, uh, there's a subtle morphing of motifs, a shifting one into another, into yet another, as a means of conveying uh, the action, or I should say, the inner psychic action of the opera. Um, and the orchestration. This is really quite important because, again, it's the only opera Wagner wrote having heard the acoustic in Bayreuth. And there's a beautiful blending of different sounds in the opera, brass and winds and strings. Now, I want to go over a little bit of a formal issue in here. I've summarized the work of an, a uh, music theorist on the overall form of this piece. Alfred Lawrence's ideas have become quite controversial. This isn't the place to get into the controversy. Uh, he sees the opera as being a vast ABA form. The middle act is the B section, you're totally different from the other parts. That's the world of Klingsor, Klingsor's magic garden, the erotic element in the work. And then events, both musical and uh, uh, stage, in terms of stage, in Act Three, are recapitulations of things going on in Act One. Uh, not a a literal musical recapitulation, but there are many, many correspondences here between what's going on. Um, at one point, a useless remedy for Amfortas, and then the genuine remedy. The account of Kundry's lost ways, the account of Parsifal's wanderings, and so forth. And then finally, at the end, Amfortas uncovers the grail, and Parsifal uncovers the grail. And given the length of the piece, and given the complexity of the piece musically, I think viewing it in this way can be very helpful in grasping um, this, this composition. So that's issues of form in a very general sense. Uh, there are also other recapitulations within the work. Uh, the prelude to the opera, or much of the prelude, is brought back during the Grail ceremony in Act One. Now, what has struck me more and more as I've listened to Parsifal is that uh, this opera has captured the music of pain, uh, the different pain that the characters are feeling on Fortas, Kundry, and Parsifal himself. And I thought I'd discuss this issue, music of pain, 
um, with you for a little bit. Um, I'm going to quote Nietzsche here, who had a very high regard for Wagner's music. Um, of course, he eventually broke with Wagner, and Parsifal for Nietzsche was the last straw, but not for musical reasons. Okay? And Nietzsche once wrote of Wagner, there is, a mu there is a musician who, more than any other musician, is a master at finding the tones in the realm of suffering and tortured souls, at giving language even to mute misery. As the Orpheus of all secret misery, he is greater than any. Indeed, he is the master of the minute and microscopic aspects of the soul. Uh, Nietzsche got it right. Okay, Wagner is the Orpheus of all secret misery. That comes out in Tristan and Isolde, and it comes out in this work as well. In Tristan, the pain is more of the pain of love, the longing that comes out so much in the chromatic harmonies of Tristan and Isolde. Here, the music is suggesting an intrapsychic and spiritual pain, I think. And this starts in the prelude. Uh, the opening music of the prelude is in the major, but then it gets repeated in the minor mode. And when you hear that same music shifted to the minor, it changes everything. And there's a searing intensity to some of that music. And then the second half of the prelude is concerned with what's called the sorrow motif, uh, which is part of the painful music of this. Sounds like I'm trying to drive you away from the opera. Um, <laughs> just occurred to me. Um, and uh, no, but this is not a lecture for people who've never been experienced it before. Um, so uh, as uh, my first actual exam music example, this is from the transformation music in Act One. Gournemans is uh, taking Parsifal on the way to Montsalvat to witness the Grail ceremony. And we get a motif associated with the sinner's torment in the middle of the transformation music. Next example is uh, Amfortas in the temple. Um, he's being forced to enact the Grail ceremony to uncover the Grail, to renew the strength of the knights. However, this ceremony is causing him both inner and actual physical pain, um, and he doesn't want to go through with it. He sings basically an eight-minute aria. It's almost a set piece within the scene of um, suffering. And my example comes from the close of the scene where he's imploring for mercy. Um, and uh, you, it's not in my example, but right after he sings this eight-minute scene of suffering, you hear the guileless fool, uh, the prophecy motif uh, performed. Where 
And it's at that moment that you hear the chorus sing the prophecy theme. Um, and no baritone's voice suggested suffering better than George London's is a wonderful amfortas. Um, in Act Three, he has a aria over his father's coffin, and once again, we have a similar kind of, of suffering. Um, and then the prelude to Act Three, uh, suggesting the decline of the knighthood, uh, Parsifal's years of wandering, his inner journey, uh, there's extreme chromaticism in this, actually going beyond anything he even did in Tristan and Isolde. So that's part of the music of pain, of suffering. Uh, Wagner's come up with the perfect musical language, uh, largely through his harmony. Uh, there's more suffering to come um, in the seduction scene from Act Two, and that's where I'm going to spend most of the rest of uh, my talk. Uh, this is the middle scene in the opera. Uh, the flower maiden's attempt to seduce uh, Parsifal uh, was more humorous in nature. They're coy, they're frivolous. It's an unsuccessful seduction. The situation is very different with Kundry. She calls out his name, and he's hearing it for the first time since he left his mother. Okay, and he says something like, is this a dream? Could this be a dream? Uh, he hasn't heard his name since um, his mother. Um, over the next 30 minutes, Kundry will make use of seduction and appeal for pity, blatant sexual advance in an attempt to destroy Parsifal. But everything that she does, uh, every approach of her, of hers, pushes Parsifal closer to an understanding of what happened to Amfortas, and then an understanding of himself. There's some autobiographical issues involved in Wagner's operas very often, and it's certainly true in here. As you may know, Wagner's father died before—sorry, um, Parsifal's father died before he was born. Okay, his name is Gamoret, and uh, Wagner's birth father died when he was a child, and his stepfather died before he was 10 years old. Uh, and there were questions of paternity anyway. Um, and that theme of the absent father is a very important one in Wagner's works, and it plays out in this work. Uh, but far more than that, uh, the idea of uh, Wagner's search for maternal warmth, 
Apparently, his mother was a rather distant figure. Uh, she was emotionally unavailable to him. Um, and uh, so Wagner's created a idealized mother figure in Herzleide, okay? Um, someone who dies when Parsifal left. And what she's going to do is she's going to return Parsifal to his weakest state, return him to infancy by calling out his name, and then seduce him, taking on his mother's characteristics. And uh, Kundry, remember, can take on many forms. Uh, we're going to see uh, my first video will be Waltraut Meyer. Um, and uh, in here, the exposed breast suggests the beginning of something maternal, which eventually becomes very eroticized. Um, this is her opening lullaby, where she's really kind of singing a lullaby to Parsifal. Uh, there's a rocking um, rhythm to it. Uh, the scoring is all strings, suggesting maternal warmth. So that's opening of her seduction. Um, however, what happens is it causes Parsifal to feel guilt over his mother's death when he left her, and then he links that to guilt over forgetting about Amfortas. There's a kind of free association going here. So she tries to redirect him, and then finally delivers the kiss. This is the kiss that's supposed to destroy him. This is the kiss that destroyed Amfortas. And instead, uh, it's his turning point for Parsifal uh, it gives them a sudden realization uh, about Amfortas. And my next example is from a CD. It's not a video. Uh, the kiss uh, conveys a physical and emotional reaction on Parzival's part. He cries out Amfortas. He's not just feeling Amfortas' pain. He's feeling his own pain. This is a sexual awakening for Parzival, and it causes him great torment. Um, and there are turbulent harmonies in here. Um, and then that's what you will hear later on in the scene. There's a self-lacerating expression. He reproaches himself. Um, how can I, a sinner, purge my guilt?
So Kundri resumes her, adva his, her advances, but Parsifal sees more and more clearly, and he starts to actually imagine the seduction of Amfortas. He relives it in this scene, uh, speaks of the quivering lips, the dangling tresses. And so now uh, she tries a different tack. Uh, she's going to make an appeal for pity. And this is where she recounts her history, that she's the woman who mocked Christ on the cross and is therefore um, cursed to search forever in term for redemption. Music is very, very stark, and there is a huge downward leap on the word lachta. And that's where we learn the source of Kundri's laugh and her scream is from that moment. Finally, she abandons all subtlety. Uh, she says, if my kiss gave you this vision, then let the full embrace of my love give you Godhead. In other words, if the kiss did this, imagine what an hour with Kundri is going to do for you. Um, and just basically flings herself at Parsifal, but he resists, he realizes what his mission is, and so she curses him. She curses him to wander, she can't do anything, uh, and calls upon uh, Klingzor, who, as you know, throws the spear at Parsifal, he catches it, makes the sign of the cross, um, a clear religious image, I realize, um, and destroys Klingzor's power and his magic garden. Now, going back to that Herheim production in Parsifal, um, in this scene, it's uh, set in the, the uh, close of the opera is set during the Nazi period, and you'll see swastikas, you'll see stormtroopers, and the person holding the spear, a uh, member of the, of the Hitler Youth, and um, he's got the spear, and then you see Amforta, uh, sorry, uh, Klingzor appearing from the top, but uh, his power is destroyed, and uh, that's the end of the scene. And that swastika medallion comes crashing down when uh, Parsifal gains the spear.
example, I'm going to jump to the end of the opera, um, let you know how it ends, um, and uh, be when uh, Parsifal makes his entrance and healing Amfortas's wound and taking over the knighthood. There's a transference of power going on in here, and it's conveyed in the orchestra because we at first we hear Amfortas's motif, which is unstable, as he was, and then that gives way to the prophecy motif, the guileless fool motif, and finally the more heroic motif of Parsifal himself. Uh, this shows um, the external issue is the transference of power. It also shows Parsifal's interchange, that he's finally integrating these different realms of the psyche. Um, and actually on this performance, it's Klaus Florian Vogt, who will be singing tonight. I've heard him quite a bit in, uh, at Bayreuth. Uh, he has an almost Mozartian quality to his sound, a very pure uh, quality that uh, suits Parsifal very well. He is, in a sense, the anti-Kaufmann, uh, where Kaufmann is about as dark and baritonal as you can get as a tenor, folk is about as bright and light as you can get, and still sing Wagner. Um, and so he will be on this particular uh, recording here. ready to enact the Grail Ceremony um, at the very end of the opera. And uh, we should get going now. Thank you for coming. <laughs>
Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Metropolitan Opera Guild lecturer John Muller talking about Wagner's Parsifal, which will be broadcast live on the radio on February 17th with Klaus Florian Vogt in the title role. Met music director designate Yannick Nézé Séguin will conduct this transcendental score. Be sure to tune in to our next episode for an exciting preview of the Met's 2018-19 season. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.